One of my favorite things about scripture is how thick it is. You all know that you can spend weeks, months, you can reflect on particular verses that are important to you and know what they say. And it just feels like the more time you spend in it, the, the more gold is derived from it. It's thick in that way. <clears throat> you can think of scripture in this way as a picture, as like a, a mountain of stone filled with gold. <clears throat> and uh, the only tool that God's given you in order to get at the treasures therein is a pickaxe. No power tools, no big hydraulic hammers or nothing like that. Just a pickaxe and the spirit. And sadly, it is the case, at least in my experience, that many will never see the glory and the gold contained in Scripture. They, they don't have time for the eternal things and <clears throat> will not put out the effort and labor along with the Spirit. Uh, it's their loss. However, may we not be those. May we be those who labor by the Spirit because those who put in uh, the backbreaking work to pick out a mine into vast gold are always satisfied and it will be well with our soul if we do so <clears throat> and today because there is so much basically the outline for this time that I preach depending on when my wife goes into labor whether it be whether I'm here next Sunday or or a couple from then the the general outline is I'm going to make sparing comments right now from 17 to 33 because these things are going to come up again. Plus, Peter's sermon is really the authoritative um, preaching and interpretation for 17 through 33. So 34 through 43 is essentially the meaning of the narrative. So the, the preaching explains what what the, the story actually means itself. <clears throat> and so I'm going to focus primarily on that. And then because there's so much to draw from the, the teaching of this scripture, I intend to have a full sermon of just application on the basis of it. So in your spare time, 40, or uh, excuse me, not 43, 34 through 43, just meditate on that uh, for at least a week or a couple. So in our text today, <clears throat> let us just look in a couple different sections. If you like, there is a outline uh, for 34 through 43 on the back of your, your bulletin. <clears throat> but in this first section of 17 through 33, simply entitled Vision Interpreted. Now, Peter, for those of you who weren't here, he saw the sheep come down from heaven, God's heavenly picnic, and it had all sorts of unclean animals and he he uh, is commanded by God to kill and eat, uh, and he argues a little bit, and then finally understands that these things are now clean to him. They are not ceremonially forbidden as it was in the days of Moses. Now, <clears throat> we see here that there is a um, confusion by Peter. Verse 17, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, Behold, men come, okay? And then while he's thinking about it and the men have come, then in verse 19, well, just let me make a comment here. Peter, while he was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, 
Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter, though confused about his vision at this point of time, he needs some time to process exactly what this means. But as he's pondering, there is an authoritative revelation from the Spirit concerning these people who he didn't know was who were coming, but who have arrived. And then he says, go with them. Uh, the Spirit says, I'm, I'm in control of this situation. I'm in charge. I'm ruling. So listen to me. As your king, go and uh, don't raise any conscience objections. Yes, they're Gentiles. Yes, you could become unclean in your mind. At least that's what he would have been thinking. But do not raise any scruples. Make sure that you leave those things aside. He, he was going to not be on guard by the word of the Lord. He should not be worried about <clears throat> some of those things he might raise as a conscience objection. Now, there is, we see in verse 23 through 27, there's, there's witnesses that have gathered and there's some expectancy. Specifically, look at verse um, Verse 23, halfway through the verse in the ESV, there's a, a section break. It says, the next day he rose and went with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. This is important. He's entering into a situation that he's going to call unlawful or maybe better translated taboo um, as an interpretation of scripture. And he wants according to the Mosaic Code, two or three witnesses at least to come accompany him while he goes to this Gentile place with Cornelius. And as he goes, there is, as he enters Caesarea, it says Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relative and friends. And there's a great many people that Peter finds there. There's, a, there's an expectation to hear a saving word from the Lord. And he gathers a church, as it were, in his home to worship the Lord, just as we gather here today. <clears throat> now in verse 27, he says, listen, uh, this is uh, risky. I, I think there's a lot of good commentary that would say unlawful is not technically correct in terms of the Mosaic law, <clears throat> that is to associate with or visit anyone Though you can see this problem happening in Galatians chapter 2 with Peter later. I'll save that for another day. <clears throat> but what you see here is as he goes and he explains, hey, listen, I'm here. Uh, and he interprets what God had shown him. So at this time, he comes to understand the vision. He says, it's unlawful, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So I came when I was sent for without objection. He learned this did not apply primarily or only to animals, to the culinary cuisine appropriate for a Jewish Christian. It rather applied to the people. God is doing something with the Gentiles. That is, God has made them clean. And, and therefore, there is the ceremonial cleansing of not only 
the, the people themselves, but of the food itself. You, you should think about it. If they were, if the previously ceremonially, uh, ceremonially unclean food made, made somebody cleansed, and that has been cleansed or permitted now, the former distinctions in Christ are abolished in the new age. That is, there is no longer uh, one ethnic group in the house. Uh, there are multiple. There's a centurion from Italy uh, stationed in Samaria, and he is brought in with a bunch of other Gentiles into the same house of God to worship. Uh, you can go to Ephesians 2 or my last sermon if you want more on that. There's one rule that is in the house and therefore all things are clean in that sense. Now let us focus on the sermon itself. Uh, if I were to title this sermon for Peter, it's certainly not written in the text. He doesn't, uh, Luke doesn't tell us, but I would title it Lord of All. This is the message that Peter wants to communicate. <clears throat> and I've put in, in headings in your bulletin, uh, the different steps. We will walk through this systematically. Verse 34 and 35, impartial. Verse 36, international. Verse 37, notable. Verse 38, invincible. Verse 39 through 41, immortal. Verse 42, indictable. Verse 43, pardonable. This is the outline of Peter's sermon, and we'll cover it bit by bit as we go. Verse 34 and 35, let us read it together. So, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter in this sermon begins with a negative uh, statement. That is, God is not like this. That is, in the Hebrew term of things, God doesn't recognize faces. It's literally what the idiom means. just means that in judgment, uh, in the Old Testament, when you have your friend come in and another stranger come in and your friend's on the wrong side of the law, you don't take notice of your friend and give them differential treatment under the law. It's usually how it's used in the Old Testament. No partiality. That is, God in relation to his justice does not treat one differently than, other, than the other. He has uh, equal measures and weights. And that is what it means to be impartial generally. But here, interestingly... Peter applies this characteristic of God, not showing favoritism, uh, universally to mankind and God's disposition to who man is. And it is intensified by the saying, in, in truth, now I comprehend this. He understood this about God as it relates to law, but, but now he understands it in a different way as it relates to salvation or, as we say, mercy as it relates to grace. He is impartial. That is, um, here, Peter applies 
in a positive statement uh, that God globally, any man or any woman, any child, any elder of any people who have put their faith in the triune God and live for him are acceptable to him without distinction. There is not one better than the other. Israel themselves as a nation is not treated in any way more significant than the rest of God's people, no matter what continent they come from. The only reason anybody gets preferential treatment, if there is any, is because of God's people, which is those who trust in Christ Jesus. It, is, it, it does not matter what tribe or what tongue or what nation you come from, rather that you bow the knee to Christ Jesus and have been engrafted into his people on the basis of faith. No nation is superior. We all stand equal in this sense, which is great news for us <clears throat> that will be impacted a little bit more. Verse 36 is uh, international. Look at verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. <clears throat> the the grammar, your translation might be a little bit different. The syntax of the Greek is difficult, uh, even in my own translation this week. But <clears throat> Peter here wants to focus on the center of the message, namely Jesus Christ himself. That, that's the focus of this sermon. Who is Jesus Christ and what has he done and Peter lays out the historical reality of these things, namely that, um, that Christ Jesus, by the, Lord, uh, by the Lord's plan, Father, Son, and Spirit, has decided to unfold redemption in a particular way that's in accordance with the Old Testament. That is, there's a, a historical uh, progression of how these things work. You, you honestly can't understand the message of the New Testament at all unless you understand what Jesus is called firstly. That is, Jesus is the Christ, which is just the Greek word for Messiah, and the English word for both of those is the anointed one. So Jesus is the Messiah of God. He is the anointed one of God, which is essentially a Jewish message. It is a message that comes from the Old Testament prophets, from Moses and David and Isaiah and Habakkuk and Zechariah and the rest. It is one that says God is going to save the world through his Messiah. He's going to make him king. He's going to make him priest. And he is going to rule the entire world. This is an Old Testament message. And, and like the Old Testament prophets, this is a preached message. That's what the Old Testament prophets did. And unlike lots of Old Testament preaching, which is focused on, on Israel, uh, there's lots of the minor prophets that aren't, well, and major prophets that aren't focused on Israel <clears throat> to the other nations. Um, but the Old Testament preaching, by and large, has a negative flavor in that Israel's filled with sinners, 
and they have broken God's covenant and deserve his wrath. And that is the focus. Well, this is, I wish we had an English word for this. It's just one verb. It's, and we have a whole phrase to translate it, preaching good news or preaching of the good news, good news preaching. It's just a one verb, right? We don't have a word for that. And that's what this is doing. That is the, the word that was given to preach is characterized by good news. It's not focused on the condemnation that comes from being sinners and breaking God's law. Rather, it's focused on Christ, which means it is a message that a, applies to us in that it is grace to us. This is good news because it's God dealing with humanity in relation to his mercy, not his justice or his justice in Christ and his mercy. We'll get there in a second. It's both at once. <laughs> um, it's a good news. It's the good news of grace. Now, I love it because he just stacks another word on top of it, <clears throat> which I love. And he says he's preaching the good news of that is of grace. And he says it's a, it's a message of peace. If you want the flavor of what the message of Christ is about, it is about peace. Peace with God from the judgment that we deserve rightly. And peace with man since God through Christ has come to make the world acceptable to him. He has come to redeem all of it. There's nothing that stops any person from being God's people. <laughs> and, and that's the point. It's not just this nation or um, that he is the king of Israel. The king of Israel is king of the world. And so Christ is Lord of all. There's a Messiah for everybody. That is, there's a Messiah for each and every individual who calls upon the name of the Lord. This is the glory, glorious universality, the, the global nature of the gospel. It's not just for one portion of the earth, but the whole thing. Now he says in verse 37, these things that, that you may be aware of are notable. Verse 37, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. And then he is going to talk about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Let me just comment. <clears throat> you yourselves know uh, is not that these Gentiles have extensive knowledge of all these things or have even heard extensively. They, they would have not needed Peter to come if that were the case. They wouldn't need to hear this message of the gospel because, of course, they would have been aware of it as, as it is. They are already believers in God, as we saw previously. Now, <clears throat> Peter says, you're, I know, acquainted, even as Gentiles whom I don't know, I just met you, but everybody knows. You certainly know about what has gone on. The, the ministry of John the Baptist will go way late in Acts because it was huge. The, John the Baptist was known all over the place. It, it is somebody you couldn't ignore. And same is to be said, even greater so in Christ Jesus. There's nobody who had missed at least the public conversation about who Jesus is. 
And this, the fact that whole cities were healed by this man and people were raised from the dead and all sorts of other wonderful things. <clears throat> it is notable, and I know you've heard of it, but now, here in this verse 38 specifically, he is going to unpack what it is from God's perspective and, and what it is the apostles were preaching. That is, the, the, he's going to give them an accurate understanding of the gospel, much like what we encounter later where... Um, uh, there's a, a Paulus who is more accurately instructed in the things of God because he only knew about John's baptism. Even though he knew it was about the Christ, he knew it was about repentance for Israel, he needed to understand more. Here in the same way, we see that the apostle is going to unfold uh, the truth of the, the gospel and preach this. First, let me just point out that he does so in a beautifully Trinitarian fashion. He says, God anointed or or made Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit and with power. Uh, I say made Christ. If you want to go back and maybe the easiest place to see this, if you've been here, Acts chapter 4, 26 and 27 There's a quotation that the nations raged against God and his Messiah or God and his anointed. And then he goes and said, you anointed Jesus. Okay, if you want to go see that parallel and be helped by that. But he is saying you have the father has made the son his Messiah. And he is in the ministry of the Messiah, been empowered by the spirit to accomplish the work of redemption. <laughs> you, you can't understand that unless you're a Trinitarian. It's beautiful. But this anointing power shows that God himself empowered the ministry of the Son, Jesus Christ. The ministry of the Son was filled with these mighty works of God because it was God's doing. So Jesus is said as the Messiah is expected to be, working good things everywhere he went. That is, he's righteous according to God's law. And secondly, that there is, um, it says specifically, let me quote it for you. He was healing all those who were oppressed by, whoops, spilt, all those who were oppressed by the devil. So in Jesus Christ, there is an undoing of the work of the devil. You can think of 1 John. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, or Hebrews chapter 2, saying that's what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. He, he is undoing the power of the demonic, and he makes absolutely clear why in the text. He says, because, I hate to repeat myself, but... God is with him. (laughs) He's anointed with the Holy Spirit. God is with him. And so he's overturning the power of Satan. Now I ask us, just to make sure that there is comprehension in our minds related to this, what what does it mean for Jesus to, to exercise, to be an exorcist of demons? What does that even mean at all? Let me make clear just by quoting Jesus' teaching in Luke 11. If you 
Uh, you don't have to go there, I, I, uh, but you can note it down. Luke eleven seventeen and following, he's casting out demons and they're accusing him of being filled with the power of Satan, essentially. And so he says, okay, listen, let, get this straight. Here's what this casting out of demons is all about. Listen to how he teaches this. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a divided household falls. And if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But now listen, here's the positive statement. And the expected answer is, these things are true. Listen to what he says. But if it is by the finger of God power of God, that I cast out demons, if this, then this. If I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's the point. Christ's ministry and the, you know, legion. You remember that guy? Many demons, literally... I don't know anybody who walks around caves and cuts themselves and can't be bound with chains. Pretty scary dude. <clears throat> he comes up and terrifies the people. Uh, but Jesus, he's terrified before Jesus. And he doesn't want to be cast out because his time is drawing near. But he does. He casts about the demons out and puts them in his right mind. It's because Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God to earth. That's what he did. That's what his ministry is about. That's why he says, behold, the kingdom is at hand, which is a glorious message. And that's why Matthew likes to call it in his gospel. You can go a number of places here. I think four, nine. Uh, I can't think of the other one off the top of my head. He calls it the gospel of the kingdom. That is the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus comes. He says, I in myself am starting, inaugurating, bringing about the power of the kingdom on earth. Now, <clears throat> I must quote the Baptist Catechism at this point because it teaches us this in the Lord's Prayer in question 109. It states regarding the Lord's Prayer, in the second petition, which is, thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and the kingdom of glory may be hastened kingdom now and advanced. When you pray the kingdom come, it's not just about the world to come that's been subjected to Christ. It is about this current world and that it, the kingdom of God may grow and flourish such that, though I know that not all these are believers right now, if you count Protestants in, in the world, there's a billion, one seventh of the world. I guarantee those aren't all regenerate. Nonetheless, it started from a very small number. And so God has been answering this request for two 
2,000 years and he'll continue to do that. We are asking and seeing that the point of Christ's coming is to bring God's kingdom and that we ourselves might be participants in it. That's called salvation. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, Colossians 1.14, and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And since it's pretty much Christmas time, it's right here. I quote the most famous of all uh, Christmas verses, which tells us our expectation and our promise for this kingdom. To us, this is Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And Peter has shown us that he has been made Lord in Christ already. So therefore, there will be no uh, end to this kingdom. It's here and it's growing and it will dominate the world one day. A glorious hope for all of us. This is the gospel. Now, <clears throat> this kingdom is has a specific quality to it and it's a glorious one look in verse 39 through 41 immortal immortal or immortality it says this and we are witnesses of all that he did in both the country of the jews and in jerusalem they put him to death by hanging him on a tree but god raised him on the third day and made him appear not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. At this point, Peter does not unpack the meaning of the, of the cross. He actually does it wonderfully. And he'll, he'll do that before the end here in verse, uh, in the very last verse. <clears throat> uh, but he has to share first things first. Things first. Uh, but the thing that I'll say before that that you should know is it, it, it just follows the argument that he's making that the one in verse 38, that is the one doing good deeds and the one who is raised from the dead, obviously his death was not because of his own sin. That should be evident to us at the first hand. <clears throat> but Peter wants to focus now and bring to mind the purpose of his apostolic ministry. The death of Christ was preceded beforehand by a selection of hand-appointed witnesses who were predestined and then providentially um, guided by the will of God such that they would be his people and witness his ministry. And then afterward, they would have a specific role to be the ones who were designated as witnesses to the people and also give an authoritative proclamation of their eyewitness ministry. That is, they were to eat with him and drink with him after he rose from the dead. <clears throat> this is a glorious thing. They witnessed... Jesus being crowned with the merit of his work. He is crowned as Lord because he conquered death. He 
has forgiven sin. He has accomplished redemption in the cross. And so this is what they witness about him. And so he resurrects from the third day from the tomb, not as a broken, battered man who never died, but rather an immortal man, one who has been granted immortality so that Christ comes and he makes a fish breakfast, fish and bread, bed, bread breakfast. Try to say that fast. That's hard. Fish and bread on the Sea of Tiberias where he eats and drinks with them to show that he has had his bodily resurrection already. The Jews expected, these believing Jews expected that there would one day in the future be a bodily resurrection in the world to come. Jesus is the first fruits of that. He is the first of this kind of resurrection. He has a... Uh, um, Our final hope as Christians is the same kind of resurrection, not some of what happened during Jesus' ministry where people came back from the dead and then they died again. That's glorious in and of itself that they come back and Jesus can raise the dead in that way. But there will be a final way that both the just and the unjust are raised, both to the judgment and to ever or immortal life. This is the Christian's ultimate hope. What is a better placard, a better symbol of victory over death other than immortality? That's what Jesus came to do. And outside of him, there's only death. There's no immortality in this sense. They witness Christ's victory over death. That's what they were chosen to see. Now, you should remember the original request in verse 33. Uh, Listen to what they say before, which launches this sermon. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, we are all here in the presence of God. They they recognize that they're going to receive a divine message from the Lord to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And now, it's not till this point in the sermon that he gets to being these kinds of witnesses, what are they commanded? This is verse 42, which I've entitled indictable. And he commanded us to testify or to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. That's the gospel message. It's amazing here. There's, there's two parts that I want to unfold. <clears throat> First, they are uh, these witnesses, that is these apostles, first and foremost, although this, there's a historical transition of this thing, are to preach to the people. This encompasses all of what has been said thus far. And really, in reality for us, it's what's, in the pages of the New Testament. This is what they were preaching. This is the infallible divine record of all of the New Testament, uh, all of the apostles' preaching material. So from Matthew to Revelation, that's what they were preaching. Revelation, you might say, is just written. That's a different story. Um, and so they are hearing what we read in the New Testament. That is, they have been 
authoritatively commissioned to say what God has designed for his Messiah and specifically for people who are not there to come to believe these things through preaching. It's an amazing reality. We're, we're in a day and age where I think a lot of people would assume that it would be better to touch and witness Christ bodily like sitting in Jerusalem himself or something like that. I'm not sure what people assume. I hear stuff like this from unbelievers all the time, but it, it's not better. God has actually designed people to come to faith through a preached message, through a man that they've never seen in the physical body, although he is a resurrected man. The, the way that people are to be converted are is through not only the apostles then, and since none of them exist anymore, that or they're not alive, <laughs> they're, in, they're with Christ, uh, you yourself are the means by which people come to hear and to know and to understand the gospel through preaching or through testifying to the people about who he is. And we have the word of God to do that. We'll unpack that more next time. The second part about this is the indictable part that he has also been commanded by God to solemnly testify that this Jesus is the one appointed by God to be a, the judge of the living and the dead. Which is a glorious reality. God's message here is not very compatible with American sentiments or sensibilities because this message is not very nice. This message itself and the major aspect that is being commanded here is in relation to to two things that we say all the time, that Jesus is Savior. That's, That's a palatable message. The other part that's necessary really to come first is to recognize that Jesus is also judge. He's not just Savior. In fact, it doesn't really mean anything to be a Savior unless you're also a judge. And here's what is meant by this. Although this is unpopular and it's a tendency to minimize this, let me speak according to not you who are trusting in Christ, but but our general nature of how we're born before we're born again. The the problem that each one of you is that by nature, you're children of wrath. That is, you stand on the wrong side of God's law and are under its condemnation to begin from the moment of your conception. And at the current moment in history, the gavel of justice has not been dropped as of yet. No one has been sentenced because of God's sheer mercy. Day, the day of judgment and of sentencing comes in the future. The day of reckoning is one where angelic officers, as it were, will bring men before the king and judge of the living and of those who are dead. And there's only one possibility for each one of us in and of ourselves. 
if it's just us to stand before God's tribunal. On that day, all of us, if we were to stand in our own unrighteousness, which is what we have, would be bound and thrown into the gloom of utter darkness forever and ever. It is a hopeless prospect for anybody on the planet. The final judgment of Christ will be absolutely without mercy because that's what's going on now. Mercy. Those who have died and who live will all stand before God on judgment day and he will be holy. And what I mean by that is his throne is white. He'll be perfectly just. In fact, he'll be holy in this, that any plea or petition, though I don't know anybody will speak on that day. We're not given the specific. Any passionate plea for grace that would move the most stone-hearted judge in our day who would be moved to weeping by somebody's testimony will not be so with Christ Jesus. He will unflinchingly send millions into the pits of hell for their sin. And that includes you if you don't trust in Christ Jesus. The judge Christ who is righteous. That's why he's able to be the judge. He's not going to fudge on righteousness at all. He's going to, as God's appointed human representative, he's the God man, you see. He came to be a man that we could not be, the kind of person we could never be. And he will also judge all of our sin, but that's the future day. Here's the glorious reality that Peter ends on, verse 43. To him, all the prophets, that is to this judge, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This brings us to the other glorious aspect that the king who will one day sit in judgment and wield the sword at now, at this very time, all the scriptures, that is from Genesis to Second uh, Chronicles or, or in our ordering Malachi, all the Old Testament points to this fact that right now is the time of redemption. This judge is not sitting in judgment at this particular point. He's sitting as king ruling. And the scriptures witness that this is the time of grace. Christ has come in order to establish a redemptive kingdom, a kingdom whereby people through entering by faith is one that um, is, is all of, all of grace. So you, you can think of it this way. God in his eternal character is just, and that's judgment. And on this uh, time that we live in is the other portion of God's character. That is, he, because of what Christ has done, can be merciful and and uh, and not um, unjust to us, but rather not just to us. <laughs> he gives us something other than justice. That is mercy. It's a totally different category than the category of justice. Now, I want to point to this by quoting a famous passage, which you probably all know, and show you that 
the glory of this reality is Christ is king and judge, but he's a certain kind of king. That is, think of the famous passage in Hebrews 12 too. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Although we could say that the joy here is manifold, what is in focus mainly in this text is that Christ has become king on the basis of his saving work. In other words, we could say he is the king of salvation. Hebrews can also say in 5, 9, and 10, because he has done this and been made perfect, finished his course as it were, he has become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Every breath we take right now is uh, under a king whose conquest is global and whose conquest is also characterized by peace and grace. Not merely judgment, though that is the case as well. Right now, you can picture that the walls of the kingdom are being extended to encompass the whole world and the gates are open day and night. And day and night, any of those who come to the gates will meet the king sitting in the gates and they will uh, be granted eternal salvation through his forgiving work if they are to say and if they are to trust that justify that justice can only be satisfied in the work of Christ's death on the cross. His death was in order to pardon sinners, not to condemn them. He bore condemnation so that we might go free. And so the king's patience is very long. He has a, he has a long wick of grace. It's been 2,000 years thus far of grace upon grace, but Right now, we must recognize that it will not always be so. You, and for those you know who are in their sins, must understand that there is no time to waste. There is no time that anybody can afford to wait and add fury to their sentence. There may be no, and you may tell everybody that do not dally Otherwise, you might find yourself on the wrong side of Christ Jesus. The kingdom of this world with its lust is a deceptive one. It may appear for a time that the inhabitants of the world who are falling according to their sinful lusts will escape the wrath of the king. But this is not the case. Everybody will fall under his sword if they do not repent. Satan's kingdom is mortally wounded and cannot shield anybody from the judgment In fact, Jude tells us that angels who left their proper place, their proper dwelling, are held in eternal chains of gloomy darkness until the day of judgment. You, as a human, have left your rightful place as worshiper of God and a servant of God. You are designed to worship a master, and that is Christ Jesus. If you don't, 
You have left your place and chains wait for you. A sword waits for you. A judgment waits for you. But here's the glorious reality that that day has been taken care of for all those who are in Christ. We recognize that he is a king who desires and who has not wielded the sword. Everybody who bows the knee and enters his kingdom, uh, the sentence has already been taken care of in the death of Christ. And the reward has already been won in the resurrection of Christ. All we have is the glorious completion of it where we get to experience it. Uh, And so I, I call you to appropriate for yourself this truth and to also be the means by which other people hear and understand the gospel of of grace and of justice that the wick of God's anger will run out but now is the day where anybody will be eternally blessed who take refuge in Christ Jesus he is all of forgiveness all of our righteousness, and all of our hope. So I say with Psalm 2, blessed, eternally blessed are those who take refuge in him as Lord and Savior and not as judge. Let us pray. We thank